Our Bible reading tonight is from Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and what may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. My name's Phil, I'm the Assistant Minister, and it's really lovely to have you with us. I'm going to pray. Please keep the Bible open in Philippians, and we're going to have a great time looking at this passage together. Our Father God, we thank you that your Spirit speaks the words of the Bible with power and relevance and clarity right now today. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us a hunger to know your truth. You would give us a trust that your way is best. And we pray, Father, that above all, as we work through this letter of Philippians, you would give us your joy. Amen. Now, it is a time for big change for a lot of us. I know some of us, it's starting university or starting work for the first time. But I guess actually for all of us, there are big changes this month as a number of the, the, the restrictions of lockdown, especially in the working world, have eased off and, and we get used to going back into the office again and all that kind of thing. And, and it raises the question of, okay, I've got this new, effectively a new phase of life again. How am I going to live? What priorities am I going to set? What commitments am I going to give myself to? It's as if life has been rebooted and, okay, well, how am I going to live now? What resolutions will I make? You know, some are pretty easy and straightforward. Resolve not to wear pyjamas to work when it's in the office rather than on Zoom. And resolve to remember that how I smell now matters as much as how I look in work. You know, bit of this, not just the hairbrush. It's, those are pretty straightforward. But what about the deeper questions? The deeper questions, the more fundamental ones. I guess every single one of us wants to live a life of meaning and value, a life that, that matters, and a life where we feel that as we exhaust ourselves, we're doing it for something worthwhile. And we're living in a way which actually enables us to flourish as the people that we've been made. How do we do that? Well, that brings us to the letter of Philippians in the Bible. It is the favourite letter of many, many Christians. I have to say it's my favourite book of the New Testament. And in part, I think it's just delightful to read a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that's healthy, 
Unlike some of the other churches, no one's sleeping with their mother-in-law or abusing the poor. Uh, no one is, uh, is beating anybody else up in church. It's, you know, it's, oh, no one teaching falsehoods about Jesus. It's just quite nice to read. They're not perfect, but it's healthy. And so it's, it's quite a happy letter to read, which is rather enjoyable. But there is a deeper reason why this letter is so fabulous and why it's such a good letter for you and me to be looking at at this point as we work out, okay, what is this next term of life going to look like for us? And that is that it presents us with a vision of life that I think is just hugely attractive. It's a life that is full of purpose, a life that is full of real contentment, And above all else, it is a life of joy. Four short chapters, 12 times, Paul talks of joy or rejoice. It is the the epistle of joy, Philippians. And the vision that is held out is the one that I think you and I, as we read, will look at it and think, I want want to live like that. I I want what it is that that, that gives a life like this, a a life of joy. clear purpose, a purpose that isn't some sort of obsessive consuming passion that ruins relationships and, and just leads you to be a strangely addicted behavior, but rather a focus, a devotion that leads to a life of clear purpose that goes with deep, rich relationships and a joy, an eternal joy, a robust, resilient Joy that carries you through. Now we'll see, I think, as we go through the letter. Uh, But here in the opening, we're going to see for the first time, God is going to teach us. A life filled with joy and purpose is one devoted to gospel growth and committed to gospel people. I think that summarizes the letter. A life filled with joy and purpose is one where you're devoted to gospel growth and committed to gospel people. And what I would simply urge you is to allow God to shape you as we study this letter together. Allow God to show you what a life of joy and meaning looks like. Raise the question for each of us, am I willing to put in the effort that change requires? So are you ready for God's adventure? Because God wants to call us to a life of meaning and joy. Okay, let's dive in. It's very easy to skip over the first couple of verses, but let's not do that. And there is one critical lesson for us here, and that is that gospel living is for the whole church. Gospel living is for the whole church. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The letters uh, from Paul and Timothy, Paul the Apostle, they describe themselves as servants, literally slaves of Christ. Their whole lives were given to the service of Jesus. And actually, that's not just some weird thing because they're apostles. It, Paul writes to the, to the church in Corinth, you are not your own, you're bought at a price. All of us who trust in Jesus are his servants, his slaves. Now, Paul is writing uh, from prison in Rome, probably around AD 62, and he's writing to a church in a town in Greece. It's a Roman colony called Philippi. And Paul established the church in a very, very short visit, something like 10 years beforehand. 
Now, the unique feature of the greeting in Philippians, when you compare it with the other letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, is the way that he lists out the different groups in the church. So he addresses the overseers and deacons and all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. Now, the overseers and deacons, they're uh, the two kind of officially recognized categories of church leadership. Overseers, it's from, we translate it uh, overseers or bishops or elders. Different uh, groups translate it slightly differently. And it's a, it's a word that in, in regular secular Greece at the time, it's you know, business leaders, political leaders. So it's those who are responsible for a group of people. Uh, deacons, well, these are, actually it's a, it's a word for humble service in the wider world. And interestingly, it's just about Paul's favorite description for what it means to, to serve Jesus in any official capacity. But he also addresses all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. And I think, I think he's emphasizing, look, what I want to say is for every single one of you. This is to the whole church, including the leaders, but not just them. And I think we might miss that otherwise, because... If it just said to all God's people in Christ Jesus at Philippi or to the church, if it just said to the church, well, as you read through, you think, well, okay, he's addressing it to the church, but I'm guessing this is really just for the staff and maybe the small group leaders because, I mean, it's, it's calling them to some pretty radical things. It's calling them to, to giving their entire life to knowing and serving Jesus more, to giving their money sacrificially. To, to provide for missionaries, to standing with Paul, even when it brings them persecution and suffering, to speaking about Jesus, even when it's unpopular. You, I mean, surely that's just for the, you know, the keen elect few. Well, hmm. I was um, a rubbish at rugby at school, which might be a surprise to you looking at my physique. Um, I was small and skinny, but I did make up for it by being slow. And the, um, but the school I was at took rugby very, very seriously. It was their big sport. And they invested in coaches and equipment, and there were training plans, and there were early morning and late evening fitness sessions. It was really taken seriously, but not for everyone. Everybody had to play. That was non-negotiable. We all had to play. But it was only the first two teams who really interested the coaches. They were the only ones who got the attention and the training. The rest of us, where we were just left to sort of bumble around doing whatever. Christianity is just not like that. It's not that God has his first team in each church, you know, the staff and, uh, and those who you see up front and that kind of thing. And, well, the rest he just leaves to bumble on through the Christian life. Now, the radical message of even the very first verse of this letter is that everything that Paul wants to write is for everyone in the church. The life devoted to gospel growth and committed to gospel people, this life of joy and purpose is for everyone. We're all called to take our faith seriously and live lives that really matter. It's not just for the keen few. The good news about that, of course, is that everything that Jesus offers is for every single one of us here tonight. All of the gospel joy we will read about in Philippians is for you, and you, and you, and you. It's for all of us. So get on board. And as we then get into the, the meat of the letter, 
And the first thing we're going to see is gospel partnership brings great joy. Gospel partnership brings great joy. That's what this first paragraph is all about, the joy that's found in serving Jesus together with other people. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I pray for you regularly, and whenever I pray, there's a smile on my face and there's joy in my heart. That's what Paul says. Now, he feels that way. Do you see verse 5? Because of your partnership in the gospel. What does that mean? Well, we'll think more about the gospel next week, but the gospel is the central message of Christianity, the message about Jesus, about his, uh, about his life, his perfect life, his death that pays for our sin, his resurrection that gives us eternal life. That's the gospel. Partnership, well, the old, the old translation was fellowship. It's a word that's used of joint business ventures. It's a word for, for serving a common goal together. And as we read through Philippians, we'll see it means more than, it is not just they share in God's grace, they're, you know, they're also Christians, they believe the same stuff. It means much more than that. It's sympathy, it's suffering, it's prayer, it's proclamation, and it's provision. It's sympathy, it's deep feeling and love for Paul, the apostle who shared the gospel with them. It's suffering. They, they stand with him and for the gospel, even when it costs them greatly. It's prayer. They're committed to praying for, for the gospel's growth and, and for, for Paul's his release from prison and, and for his courage as he stands for Christ. It's proclamation. They don't just get someone else, pay someone else to tell people about Jesus. No, each of them is invested in, in proclaiming the good news themselves. And it's provision. This church has dug deep to pay for Paul and his team to go out to take the gospel to other places so that other towns would have churches full of people saved by the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. This is about a community cracking on together in the service of God and the proclamation of his gospel. And Paul is he's filled with joy as he remembers that here is a church that is as committed to the gospel as he is. Lots of, of shared experiences on earth lead to strong bonds. And so in one sense, you're not surprised. You know, they've, they've done stuff together. They stand with him. And so there's this, this depth of feeling. But verse 6 shows that the gospel goes a step further and offers something even better. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, Paul doesn't just have the warm glow of, of looking back through the photo album and, and remembering the good old days of all that he got up to in Philippi and, and the wonderful things they did together. Paul has genuine excitement about the future. Now, I'm, I'm of an age where I see my old university friends uh, not so often. When we do, it's generally just nonsense chat reliving the glory days back then and complaining about which bits of our bodies have stopped working and but it's the it's not just us the, you watch documentaries of uh, world cup winning teams when they get them back together or soldiers who fought in some terrible battle forged deep deep bonds and the thing that brings the smile to their face and, and makes the eyes well up is talking about the past those are the great days. Those are the things that tie them together, and that's where the excitement is in the past. 
But Paul is more excited about the future. Because for all who trust in Jesus, the best is yet to come. Jesus Christ has begun a good work in us. If any Christian tells you that they're perfect now, that's ridiculous. Jesus has begun a work in us. None of us are the finished product yet. But God will finish that work, and it will be incredible. See, Paul sees not just what they've been and not just who they are, but what they will be. Their gospel partnership with him, their standing with him, gives him confidence that they really do trust in Jesus and they really will be transformed by Jesus. I'm sure you're aware of, even if you would never admit to watching Grand Designs, the home improvement show, there was a, there was a bit of a war on, um, on social media this week because the latest episode, uh, the couple whose Grand Design home rebuild that they followed had spent £125,000 on the kitchen. Yeah. yeah. It's like, what is it made of? <laughs> Solid gold? I mean, it's £125,000 on a kitchen. But if you ever watch Grand Designs, when you've run out of everything else to watch, the, the, um, there is, it basically every show follows the same trajectory. There's um, uh, people with a great vision um, whose architect's taking them slightly for a ride, and, uh, and, and they've got a fair amount of money and no idea how much it's going to cost. And then they've, they've got this grand plan, but then there's always the February visit. There is always the February visit where Kevin McLeod trudges into the building site and they're way over budget, way behind schedule, and nothing has happened for weeks on site because the British weather has surprisingly been raining and windy and the, the site is just disgusting. It's just fetid puddles and churned mud and, and filthy machinery and flapping plastic sheeting everywhere. But the amazing thing is how often the couple are they're just, they don't mind because they see in that mess the beginnings of what they know will be something amazing. And for them, the, the, that churned up mud is just the sign that the foundations have been dug and the building is going to follow. And you see, unlike grand designs, God has an unlimited budget and he is perfectly committed to his grand design in each and every one of our lives. And the best that we see of God's work in us now, those little glimpses we see of the goodness of God shining through one another, they are just the muddy foundations compared to what one day will be built. God is committed to continuing the work he started in each of us this year. And so I hope you're as excited as I am to see what God's going to do in the people sitting either side of you this year. Paul is just excited because here's a church and he looks back and sees they've been partners in the gospel with them and he looks forward and sees what God will one day do in them. Verses 7 to 9 continue the theme of Paul's gospel partnership, but now it's the depth of the bond that is stressed. Verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He holds the Philippians in his heart. And although he's talking about feelings, it's striking how logically stresses the feelings are. It's not just, I just can't explain it, guys, but from the moment we met, there was just this warm feeling inside me. It's, no, he, he gives reasons. Verses 7 to 8. Look, 
it's right, it's justified for me to feel this way about you. Because, why? Well, because you've stood with me, Paul says, through thick and thin. You were with me when I was out preaching the gospel in Philippi and the, the, and the crowd was responding. And the church was planted and people became Christians. And you were with me when I was beaten and put in prison and abandoned. You didn't run away. You must have been tempted to. Lots of others did. I mean, if Paul has been in prison, you can imagine them thinking, if Paul has been in prison for preaching the gospel and we believe the same gospel, that might not work out so well. And if Paul can't even keep himself out of prison, then is he really the Christian leader we want to tie ourselves to? But they stand with him. Whether the crowd are putting their trust in Jesus or throwing stones, they stand with him. And so there's a depth of love between them. I guess there's a little challenge there for us too. Are we willing to be known as Christians, to stand with other Christians when it's unpopular and mocked? Not just when it's getting a hearing. Now, I think verse 8 is fascinating. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Why is that fascinating? Well, it's the only time in the entire letter that Paul makes a solemn oath invoking the name of God. And what does he do it for? To tell you how much I love you. Isn't that amazing? He wants them doesn't make him love them anymore, but it makes them realize to feel the depth of his love for them. Verse 8 also tells them that his love is just an outworking, do you see, of Jesus Christ's love. I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. If the Philippians bring a smile to Paul's face and a warm glow to his heart, then it's only because Paul looks at them the same way that Jesus does. I have to say that blows me away when I read verses like that. That for all my failures and faults and half-hearted efforts, Jesus views people like me with warm affection. And as we seek to serve him, it it makes him smile. One of my main areas of responsibility at church is training and supporting the leaders of the midweek groups, the discipleship groups, DG groups that we were just hearing about earlier. And I can honestly say it puts a smile on my face every week as I pray for the group leaders by name. Because I see the hard work that they put in and the sacrifices they make, the hard work to understand God's word clearly. I see the times that they, they turn down really good offers, even friends' weddings to be at the, the, the weekend away so they can serve their groups. I see the evenings they give up to help people work through difficult decisions. I see the time they invest to help young Christians understand the gospel deeply. I see the the painful willingness to, to challenge others when they're making foolish or sinful life choices. And they gently but lovingly and firmly are willing to have the awkward conversations. I see them faithfully giving time to pray week in, week out. And I have to say, it fills me with joy. And look, here's the point. The more you're committed to serving the gospel with other people, in partnership with others, the more joy you'll have in your life. The life of real joy is not the selfish life without commitments where I make sure I'm free to do whatever I want. 
It's actually the sacrificial life, like Jesus, the life of serving other people. And as well as the heartache that always comes when we genuinely love people, there is joy and camaraderie and the unbreakable promise of God that the very best for us and them is yet to come. Finally, Paul um, ends this section by praying. And he told them he prayed for them in verses 3 to 4, and now he lets us listen in on what it is he prays. Verse 9, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It is a fabulous prayer. I mean, sometimes our own prayers perhaps don't always compare quite so well with it. If you're anything like me, there's, ooh, how much spiritual eternal dimension is in my praying? I mean, too often, I guess, it ends up being about work going well, money not running out, sickness getting better, relationships working out, which are all good, important things. But Paul lifts our eyes here. And he helps us see how we can love people better by praying better for them. He also shows us what we should be aiming for. As he says, this is what I'm praying for you. And if we, if we understand him, then we'll realize these are the things we should be aiming for above everything else. I'm not saying don't pray for the other things. Of course we should. But here are some higher, richer, greater prayers. These are the prayers that lead people to live lives of deep joy and real purpose. Now, it begins uh, with love, verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Okay, love for God or people. Uh, Love for other Christians or people outside the church. Love in particular for the poor and needy or or for people in general. Yes. He's deliberately vague. And love should be the, the governing, ruling, guiding, energizing principle in all our relationships if we're Christians. Jesus said, you summarize that all that God commands in two very simple statements. Love God with everything you have and love others as much as you love yourself. But the key thing here is that love is to be fueled by growth in, do you see, knowledge and depth of insight. And you can't actually grow in genuine love unless you're growing in knowledge. Think about it. Love for God only grows as we know more of God, of who he is and what he's like. And and love for other people, it requires us to know them more and to have depth of insight. That is practical understanding how to love them better. You can't love someone well if you don't actually know what they're like and what they like. The the first Christmas we were married, my present buying for my wife was driven by deep love, but it has to be, say, rather shallow knowledge. Uh, She enjoyed unwrapping a very practical and very useful top-of-the-range alarm clock on Christmas Day. Now, it was a long time ago, and we've both learned a lot since then. But the only way to improve my love for my wife was actually to improve my knowledge of my wife. To seek to understand her, to to find out those deeply buried things that you can't just work out, but you have to burrow deep to find out, like that she likes jewellery. Who'd have thought? It wasn't apparent to me. (laughs) But maybe that's just... Anyway, the... 
you've got to know someone more to love them better. If you're going to love people in ways that genuinely serve them, you have to know them. And all true love will lead you to want to know people more. Same is true of God. The problem comes that we assume everybody's like us. We lazily assume that if we would rather have somebody buy us a present than take us out for food, then all my mates must feel the same way too. And worse still, we do it with God. We assume that he must be like me and he must like the stuff I like. But if we're truly to grow in love for God, just as love for others, we must grow in knowledge of him. Digging into his word to, to understand what he's like and what he likes and what he doesn't like. Even if it means finding some of the things that I naturally really like, he intensely dislikes. Because the aim of knowledge, verse 10 to 11, is a transformed life. So that you will grow in, in, in love fueled by knowledge, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That word pure is particularly lovely. It's literally the judgment of the sun. It talks of a, a goodness so deep, that even the piercing, revealing glare of the brightest light in the universe doesn't show up any filth. Ties back to verse 6. That's where we're heading to. That's what God's good work will look like. And today we're to walk more and more towards that light. But it's not a, a, a sort of austere monastic purity, the absence of anything. It's an abundant purity. This is not flat earth with all the weeds pulled out. This is a verdant garden with beautiful flowers and lush trees full of fruit. The fruit of righteousness. That is a life where the abundant love for God bubbles over into practical actions to love God and serve others. Now the important thing I think with this prayer is not to divorce it from what happens in 3 to 8. What does a life filled with the fruit of righteousness look like? Well, given what Paul has told us in verses 3 to 8, it's got to be a life focused on supporting and spreading the gospel message of Jesus and encouraging others as we do it together. The fruit of righteousness must look like a life devoted to the gospel. And it's all to the glory and praise of God. That is amazing. As amazing as it is to know that as we serve God, we will find joy. Right at the end here, Paul tells us, as we serve God, we'll bring him joy. Whatever your voice sounds like tonight, thank goodness for masks muffling me a little bit, but whatever your voice sounds like, when you serve the gospel in partnership with others, when you give your life to serving the gospel, In heaven, your life sounds like a song of praise and glory to God. This life of gospel purpose doesn't just bring joy to us. It brings praise and glory to God. And this is the life God wants for you and for me. A life of deepening knowledge and love for God and others that leads you to investing yourself in serving the gospel with others and results in joy, real joy, lasting joy, robust, resilient, eternal joy. That's the vision that God is going to call us to through Philippians. 
So what will this year look like for you? What are you going to make this year about? What are you going to live for? What practically are you going to commit to in the weeks to make this a reality? Don't sell yourself short. Make your life about the gospel for your joy and for God's glory. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much for the the glorious letter to the Philippians. We thank you for the vision it paints of a life of purpose and a life of joy. Help us, we pray, at the start of this year as the cement has not yet set for most of us to establish routines and rhythms and give ourselves to commitments that enable us to serve the gospel and commit to others. Help us to believe you when when you say this is the way of joy. And this is the way of glory. And we ask this for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.